the San Francisco Experience Podcast. Brought to you by Jim Herlihy. Independent commentary from a Silicon Valley perspective for a global audience. Featuring newsmakers, thought leaders, and authors. Season 23, Episode 2. Overreach. How China Derailed Its Peaceful Rise. In conversation with Professor Susan L. Shirk. Our guest today is Susan Shirk, the founding chair and emeritus chair of the 21st Century China Center at UC San Diego. She joins us today from her office in La Jolla, California. Hello, Susan, and welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Jim. Nice to be with you. Susan, please take a moment to tell us about your work at UC San Diego and your career in the field of U.S.-China relations. Well, I'm an old China hand who started studying China in the days before it was possible for Americans to visit China. I was doing my PhD research in Hong Kong, where I interviewed refugees in order to learn what was going on the ground in Mao's China in 1971, when I had a surprising opportunity to visit China even before Richard Nixon with a group of other American PhD students. So China opened up just in time for me to then spend the next 50 years really studying China spending a lot of time doing field research in China. And I also had a very lucky opportunity to serve in government in the Clinton administration, where I was the Deputy Assistant Secretary of State from 1997 to 2000, responsible for our relations with China. And of course, in that capacity, I spent a lot of time traveling back and forth from China in diplomatic negotiations. And that was a period when U.S.-China relations were improving dramatically. So really, most of my career, certainly after Mao died, in the period when his successor, Deng Xiaoping, introduced market reform, opening to the world, looser party control over social and economic life, I have has been a, a very positive experience in which the lives of people in China were improving and China's relationship with the United States, its neighbors and the rest of the world was also improving. At a certain point in the first decade of the 21st century, all that changed. And that's what motivated me to write this book. Very impressive. Susan, for 30 years after the death of Chairman Mao Zedong in 1976, China's leaders, and Deng Xiaoping in particular, adopted a restrained approach to foreign policy, emphasizing economic growth. And that strategy was wildly successful, creating the second largest economy after the United States, lifting hundreds of millions of Chinese from poverty, and transforming China into an export-led manufacturing powerhouse. But then in the mid-2000s, something changed. 
Pragmatism was replaced by hardline ideology, it seems, and the U.S.-China relationship has become unstable. What happened? One of the major shocks that impacted China and that resulted in this change and shift away from peaceful rise into a more aggressive foreign policy and a more repressive domestic policy was the global financial crisis. Because China was less impacted than the United States, the U.S. mistakes in its own financial regulations and those of other Western countries were the cause of that financial crisis. That really changed uh, everywhere about America's, there was a, a sense that maybe America was on the decline and China, which was less negatively impacted and was able to revive its economy after the financial crisis very quickly, that maybe China was rising so peacefully that it might even surpass the United States. So it created perceptions in China and the United States that China might surpass the United States and the U.S. is on the decline. But there were also other things going on related to the way collective leadership operated in China at that time. After Mao died, as you note, was a period in which Deng Xiaoping very pragmatically to reform the decision-making process in China, introduced peaceful turnover of leadership at the top, mm -hmm. retirement ages, term limits, and tried to strengthen the collective institutions of the party in order to prevent the tragic mistakes of the Mao era. And Deng said, the big problem of the Mao era was over-concentration of authority, which led to arbitrary decisions and tragic decisions like that that Mao made to start the Great Leap Forward and the Cultural Revolution. So to prevent that, he introduced collective leadership. Well, collective leadership had a lot of advantages, but it also had some disadvantages. And in the first uh, decade of the 21st century, around 2006, 7, 8, under Hu Jintao, this collective leadership, you saw all these different bureaucratic interest groups going their own way and exaggerating foreign threats, exaggerating domestic threats, trying to strengthen their own bureaucratic influence, their budgets by doing that. And much of policy became hijacked by what I call the control coalition of the internal security forces, the military, kind of the hard line element in the Communist Party. And Hu Jintao, although he was quite a well-intentioned leader, he didn't have the ability to restrain these bureaucratic interest groups. And so things got out of control. And you see this shift in 
international behavior. We saw it first in the South China Sea, mm -hmm. in which China started acting aggressively to assert its claims to practically the entire South China Sea and confronting and shoving around fishing trawlers and energy drilling by other Southeast Asian claimants who also have coastal rights under international law and even confronting American naval vessels. And that really changed the narrative, the per perceptions of what kind of rising power China was. Um, and it wasn't being, this change wasn't being driven by a nationalist attitude on the part of the public in China, because actually at the time, mm -hmm. pay that much attention to the South China Sea compared to other hot button issues like Japan and Taiwan. The other thing that happened is domestically, the state started restoring more power over the economy after decades of market-oriented decentralization. And finally, social control on the eve of the 2008 Beijing Olympics. Mm -hmm. Control Coalition introduces grid management, much tighter control over social life, over NGOs, and especially over the media. These were the changes that really surprised me and motivated me to write the book. Now, of course, this kind of overreach in foreign and domestic policy becomes even more acute once Xi Jinping takes over in 2012. And the collective leadership system under Hu Jintao, in addition to the problems I just mentioned, also had led to really extreme corruption on the part of the politicians in the top reaches of the Communist Party collective leadership, the Politburo Standing Committee in particular. And this corruption enabled Xi Jinping to get a mandate mm -hmm. from the party leadership to become China's next leader and to strengthen the control of the core leader, the central leader, and to carry out a massive anti-corruption campaign. So I'd say there was a consensus that that type of readjustment was needed, but nobody expected Xi Jinping to rule very much in the Mao mode and to take the party control over economic and social life much, much tighter than anything we'd seen since Mao's death, and also to act with greater international ambition and in a very provocative and coercive manner that now has caused a, a major international backlash mm -hmm. against China. So what we see under Xi Jinping is a system with very concentrated leadership at the top. I dare say that if Deng Xiaoping were still here, he would say this system reflects over-concentration of authority and arbitrary decisions. Mm -hmm. 
So this is resulting in especially the anti-corruption campaign, which he has really a purge mm -hmm. of all the potential rivals to Xi Jinping. It's been going on since 2013 and continues to this very day. So many of the people, many of the politicians who she thought were very loyal to him and, and actually were part of enforcing this anti-corruption campaign, these people are now themselves the targets. And the pressure on all subordinate officials is intense. Mm -hmm. As a result, every party, government, military official rushes on the bandwagon behind Xi Jinping's policies mm -hmm. in order to demonstrate their loyalty. And perhaps and, being more royalist than the king in their implementation of these policies. You know, just, right. just recently we saw that the innocuous and very successful exchange of pandas, giant pandas from China to the United States, that that after 50 years, 50, 51 years, that that program has now come to an end. Is this an example of the kind of petty extremist decision-making that uh, some of the, his sycophantic followers are, How that's how they're interpreting his view of the West? Well, I think it, it could very possibly be an example of this kind of overcompliance with Xi Jinping's preferences. They have a sense of the direction he'd like to go in, and then they carry out his wishes to an extreme degree. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Even if he himself might, even more extreme than he might have originally wanted. You definitely saw that also in how the zero COVID policy was carried out in the lockdowns for three years inside China or the more aggressive behavior in the South China Sea, the Coast Guard and military pressure against Taiwan, against Japan, the economic sanctions against Australia for calling for a international scientific investigation of the origins of COVID, and even for Xi Jinping's friendly, supportive stance toward Putin's invasion of the Ukraine. You mm -hmm. know, China was Ukraine's largest trading partner. They had a very good relationship. But then Putin came to support Xi Jinping by coming to the Olympics, whereas many other international leaders sat it out and did not come. And they signed this long agreement of friendship without limit. And she is much more supportive of Putin and Russia mm -hmm. than most other political figures in China are. Frankly, support for Russia is not that strong in China, except by Xi Jinping. So... And of course, once China is supportive of Russia's unprovoked and completely illegitimate invasion of Ukraine, that increases the threat perceptions of China. Mm -hmm. In your book, you talk about the black box and the black box of Chinese politics. Now, of course, we have to remember that China still 
is governed by the Chinese Communist Party. It is not a democracy, far from it. And I'm curious as, re- as regards the black box of Chinese politics, how do you as a researcher, and you've spent 50 years researching China, traveling to the country, formulating policy, as secretive as the Chinese Politburo is, and of course you talk about the black box, how do you develop information about the changes in Chinese politics? How much of this is public? How much of this is closely held, very secretive? How are you able to to read the tea leaves as you... You shouldn't have to read the tea leaves, but it seems to me that's what you have to do, I guess, in your position. How do you do it? What are, what are your sources? Well, first of all, I read Chinese documents and I read the media, but then much of my research about this highly secretive decision-making process inside the Chinese Communist Party is done through interviews. You know, I'm fortunate in that I'm an old China hand. I've been going to China for a long time. I know a lot of people. And when I first met them, they may have been significant positions at higher levels. Mm -hmm. So... I just gotten to know a lot of people in China and I'm always very careful to protect my sources like mm-hmm. any good social scientist does. So of course I don't use people's names and and I respect their own concerns about not getting in trouble for revealing anything from inside the black box mm-hmm. but That's basically how I learn a lot about how things work. But there's still a lot I don't know. I'm always aware of how much I still don't know. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm still surprised by things that happened in China, even after all these years of studying it. Let's come back to talk about the economy, because uh, still, China is one of our largest, no longer the largest, but one of our largest trading partners. And of course, China is very much an export-driven economy. All of this internal political turmoil and the one-man rule, if you will, of uh, Xi Jinping, of course, he, I guess he abolished term limits. He's effectively president for life. The mm-hmm. concept of collective leadership is something that he's he appears to have junked. In terms of the now of the economy, from what we can see, just hasn't bounced back as quickly as other economies have from COVID. And one of the other data points that I'm that was that I found really quite shocking, considering it still is a communist country, I read that the top one percent of China of the Chinese population owns thirty percent of the wealth of China. Yet at the other extreme, the poorest 25% at the bottom of the economic ladder only own 2% of China's wealth. And of course, housing assets are, are a huge amount of household wealth in China, I think somewhere upwards of 70%. With all of this change going on at the top in China, how is the economy digesting that? And is that change at the top proving to be a drag on the Chinese economy, provide, just creating too much uncertainty? That's a good set of questions. And it is a very new situation in China today in that this economic juggernaut of this very 
dynamic, rapidly growing economy has not just slowed down in its growth rate, but we have pretty serious unemployment. Mm -hmm. As you point out, people's savings, which have been put into real estate now, are in jeopardy. And the private sector, which is where most of the employment was generated, many of the entrepreneurs have headed for the exit. Mm -hmm. Because it's not just the uncertainty, it's really that the attitude of Xiping and the party decision makers is very pro-state sector and very anxious to prevent private entrepreneurs from becoming too strong because from Xi's point of view, they're one group that might be able to organize mm -hmm. against him. Mm -hmm. He, despite the fact, or maybe because he's the rules and now he's in his third term, you know, some people might think he's really riding high, but my sense is that he's extremely insecure and is worried about different economic groups, especially private business, that might challenge his political power. So basically, the business community in China has lost confidence in the good judgment of Xi Jinping and the party leadership. And many of them are taking their wealth, moving their families out of China. And in fact, even a lot of middle class people want to do that. I mean, something right now that I'm really surprised to see is that the dissatisfaction with the Xi Jinping regime and this over-concentration of power is coming not just from other members of the elite mm -hmm. who resent the lack of power sharing and think these decisions are arbitrary and misguided, but even the public in China, many in the public, after the sudden end of zero COVID, are now questioning the competence of hmm. in the top decision makers and losing the trust that they had in the central government and whether or not it's really looking out for their welfare. So this means that the future is very uncertain. I often think about it as I can't predict what will happen, but when it happens, I won't be surprised. Mm -hmm. Has he effectively killed the goose that laid the golden egg, or is he in the process of kind of strangling it, would you say, in layman's terms? I would say yes. The gestures that his government, really it's the party now that's making, calling the shots, not the government itself, the gestures that it's made are pretty minimal pretty pro forma and not really sufficient to restore the confidence of the business sector that they will not be at risk in China. And one thing that's really very disturbing that I've become aware of recently is that especially these business people, but other people too, are really afraid for their own physical security. Mm. 
you know, when will they be grabbed and sent away to jail? And of course, that's true for other officials as well. And international business people and academics are also afraid to go to China because Xi Jinping has put such a premium on security that he is willing to jeopardize a lot of economic improvements, a lot of uh, to China, because they worry that they might be rounded up. You know, they have a new law there that makes security, you know, what is a matter of national security? Mm -hmm. And when might the uh, security police come and arrest you or the what we call the Ministry of State Security, which is supposed to be tracking down spies, when might they come and hold you for taking information that they will consider espionage? Mm -hmm. um, so a lot of due diligence firms that consultants that would investigate companies when international companies were considering acquiring them, merging with them. Now that whole business is really in jeopardy because these firms are being accused of stealing of information from China. Susan, in the remaining few minutes of the podcast, what are your thoughts about the current direction of U.S. policy towards China? We've seen Secretary of State Blinken Secretary of Treasury Yellen, Secretary of Commerce Raimundo, of course, climate czar John Kerry, all in the last few months, having gone to Beijing, essentially, I guess, with the message that we're open for business. So, and then, of course, here in San Francisco in uh, November, we're going to have the APEC summit. And supposedly, President Xi is supposed to come to San Francisco and will meet with President Biden, of course, who is the host of the APEC summit. Give us your sense of where U.S. foreign policy stands at this point as, as we bring this podcast to a close. Well, the, I think when the Biden administration came into the White House, we were expecting that its approach to China would be different from the Trump administration approach and that it would reach out to China, try to negotiate some of the areas of differences that we have with China and try to induce China to moderate its policies in ways that would be good for the United States as well as people in other countries, especially China's neighbors. And what was surprising and disappointing to me is that for quite a long time, we really didn't take any diplomatic initiatives to talk to China. Instead, the Biden administration emphasized the need to disabuse Chinese of the view that the U.S. was on the decline and that its influence, international influence, was uh, diminishing. And, and of course, we had seen that phenomenon in the Trump administration where we alienated a lot of our allies and friends by our own actions and policy. So the Biden folks in the first couple of years concentrated on building up these coalitions mm -hmm. 
to balance against China. AUKUS with the Australians and the Brits, Quad mm-hmm. with India and um, Japan and Australia. And we didn't really make big effort to talk to China. And I think we've waited a little too long to do that. And But now we are finally doing that. So I certainly think that's the right thing to do and try to prepare for what could be a point of seeing some improvement in relations with China, inducing Xi to revise some of his more belligerent and repressive policies at the time that the leaders meet in San Francisco. You know, there's been this kind of the United States have just given up mm-hmm. and believe that China, well, first of all, they've forgotten what China was like up in, you know, before 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. I think that China's always been just the way it is today. But in fact, and I hope this is one thing that people take away from my book, is that China has changed quite a lot in the period up until recent years. And right now we're at a real low point in terms of the quality of governance, the quality of foreign policy. China looks a lot as threatening in some ways as it did under Mao. Mm -hmm. It wasn't always that way. And that means to me that it won't necessarily always be that way in the future either. And especially now that we see such a level of dissatisfaction inside China with the Xi regime, if we are able to have effective foreign policy strategy toward China in which we maybe use sanctions, including tech sanctions, but we use them as part of the diplomatic strategy in which we say to the Chinese side, look, here are the things you're doing that we find the most problematic. Mm-hmm. And if you don't find a way to moderate your policies, we're going to impose mm-hmm. the sanctions on you. That's the way we handled nonproliferation back in the 90s when I was in government. And it worked pretty well. But right now, our sanctions, including the tariffs, the trade tariffs, and the restrictions on scientific and technological collaboration, and these new restrictions on our investments in China, they're not really linked explicitly to any particular behaviors Mm -hmm. on China. And as a result, people in China just see them as containment. We're just trying to slow China down. So one big problem with that is that people in China who are really unhappy about the economic problems that are bearing down on China now internally, they're blaming us for those problems rather than blaming (laughs) Xi Jinping in their own government's mistakes. Mm -hmm. My recommendation is to not give up on diplomacy and to not overreact 
to China's overreach, um, but to think about what will really make the U.S. more competitive, more vibrant society. You know, one of the things that we professors are the most worried about is that our policy our returns on scientific collaboration are discouraging these talented folks from China from coming here to the United States and are driving many Chinese American scientists and engineers to leave China and also many businesses to leave the United States because they don't want to get caught. Oxford University Press or on Amazon or at your local bookstore. You also, we have an audiobook as well. Thoroughly recommend it to my listeners. If you really want to understand why we are where we are with China, read this book because Susan Professor Shirk has given us a very clear explanation that I haven't read elsewhere. Once again, Susan, thank you so much for joining us today. And how can our listeners follow you? Well, I do a little tweeting, but I'm not a huge social media person. But uh, look at 21st Century China Center website, which is china.ucsd.edu, because not just I, but a wonderful group of colleagues led by current director Victor Xi are blogging, posting about our research and what we're learning and our suggestions for U.S. policy. So china.ucsd.edu. Well, once again, Susan, thank you very much for joining us and explaining how and why our relationship with China is undergoing such fundamental changes. Thanks so much. I really enjoyed it. And for our listeners, today's episode is number 448, the San Francisco Experience podcast is carried on Apple Podcast, Spotify, Pandora, 18 platforms with listeners in 60 countries. Feedspot recently recognized the show as Top 25 California News Podcast. This has been the San Francisco Experience Podcast with Jim Herlihy coming to you from San Francisco. Mm-hmm.